In the movie uh, Batman Begins with Christian Bale, there is a scene where Bruce Wayne, attempting to establish his cover as this uh, rich uh, playboy uh, out about the town who does all the things that rich people do, is having dinner at a local hotel. And in that particular evening, at uh, his suggestion, his two female companions get up and climb into the lobby fountain and begin swimming. Now, this obviously upsets the management of the hotel, and they approach Mr. Wayne in an attempt to encourage him to ask his friends to get out of the pool because this is inappropriate behavior, to which Mr. Wayne smugly pulls out his checkbook and informs the maitre d' that he is intending to buy the hotel and change the rules. In a sense, the man can just get over it because Bruce Wayne has the ability to buy his way out of his problems. You and I might not be billionaires able to just throw money at our problems, but let's be real honest, there are times in our lives, in big ways and in small ways, that we often determine our actions based on our assessment of the consequences and our ability to overcome them. We've done some things and we've gone in our mind, well, you know, what's the worst that could happen? So I'm just going to deal with it. Maybe we speed because we've weighed the consequences in our mind that says, you know what, what's the worst that can happen? Maybe I can talk my way out of the ticket, I can appease the officer, or I can just pay the fine and move on. Unfortunately, this attitude doesn't just stay in our social lives. This attitude oftentimes creeps into our spiritual lives as well. Just like the ancient Israelites, we can assume that God's grace gives us, at the best, some wiggle room to do what we want without consequences, or at worst, we can be like the people that Paul anticipated in the book of Romans that said, hey, listen, if God's grace is real, then I can do whatever I want with no consequences, because that's the power of grace. And that's what we find to be true of the ancient Israelites, that they had come to assume that their special status with the Lord meant that they could get away with whatever they wanted. Sometimes, let's be real honest, we struggle with that same reality, where we'll head off into something doing what we, wanting, want, what we want, assuming that, listen, I'll go to church on Sunday, or I'll say this many prayers, or I'll do this religious rite or ritual, and God will be Okay. And our relationship will be smoothed out and God will give me grace. When we presume upon the Lord's kindness like this, we need the reminder, the reminder that comes from the book of Micah of the full picture of God's nature. And the reminder that being with the Lord will always make us like the Lord. And if we are not like the Lord, then it must be because we are not really with the Lord. In the heart of the book of Micah, at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, we see kind of a really good picture of the pattern of the entire book of Micah. Look with me, if you will, in chapter 3, verse 9. Micah declares, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disasters shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins 
and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you again for your word, for the reminder of your steadfast love and mercy, but also of your justice. Heavenly Father, you are concerned that we not only be a people who are religious, but a people who are righteous, that it would characterize not only our Sunday mornings, but that your love and our relationship would characterize our Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays as well. Forgive us for the ways, Heavenly Father, that we fail to live in light of your grace and mercy and character and out of our relationship with you. And lead us this morning to the one who did it perfectly on our behalf, your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. Micah is the sixth of the twelve minor prophets that we are studying together. And right smack dab here in the heart of Micah, we find God's word of judgment upon the crowning jewel of his people, Jerusalem. Up until this point, the primary uh, audience of the prophet's uh, messages um, that has condemned their idolatry and their injustice has been towards what at this particular time was the northern kingdom of Israel, and we have seen only very vague allusions to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, for many of you veteran Bible readers, you understand exactly what I'm talking about, but just a brief history so that we can kind of understand what's going on. David rose to power, and he established Jerusalem and Israel as a world power at his time and at his age. Solomon built upon that, David's son, but after Solomon's death, Solomon's son Rehoboam was wicked and evil and decided to, to oppress his people instead of granting them love and mercy as a ruler should. And the northern tribes of Israel rebelled against the house of David and they established their own kingdom in the north. And from that particular point forward, Israel and Jerusalem were Israel and Judah were split into two kingdoms with kings in the north in Israel and kings in the south in Judah. And the kings in the south in Judah were all descendants of David. All of the kings of the northern tribe of Israel were evil all of the time. Some of the kings of the southern kingdom Judah were righteous some of the time. 
But God has sent his prophets here in this particular time to confront the nation of Israel as well as the nation of Judah with their wickedness, with their sin, with their idolatry, and with their injustice. We have seen, as I said, the prophets up to this point have primarily focused on northern Israel because that would be the kingdom that would fall first. And remember, there were no kings that were ever good in northern Israel. And so the prophets were warning them that if they did not return and repent and come back to the Lord, the Lord would judge them, and Assyria eventually came in and destroyed them. In the book of Micah, Micah makes reference to this as he talks about uh, Samaria in chapter 1 and the fall of Samaria, the northern kingdom. But he comes here to the heart saying that the wickedness of the northern kingdom of Israel has come up to the very gates of Jerusalem. And the people in Jerusalem, in their haughtiness and in their pride and in their arrogance, believe that because they are the citizens of the crowning jewel of God's kingdom, Mount Zion, Jerusalem itself, that this was the one place on all of the earth where God Yahweh had determined, this will be my dwelling place. They had the audacity to believe that no one would ever be able to touch it. You see right there in the verses that we read just a moment ago, they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. We are sitting safe in the safest place in the world, the dwelling place of God. And so we can be however we like. But Micah's message to them and his message to us is that if we are really with God, we will be like God. And if we are not like God, then we will not, then it is evidence that we are not truly with God. Micah has come to convict the people of Israel and Jerusalem and Judah with their wickedness and with their sin. He's come, he says, earlier in chapter 3, he says in verse 8, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah has come to expose the sins of the people and their leaders. They are immoral. There is prostitution, fraud, and robbery rampant across the city of Jerusalem and across Mount Zion. More than that, though, they are unjust. As the rulers accept bribes, as they collect interest, what's called usury, to the hurt and the detriment of the poor, there's slavery. There is oppression of the weakest members of their society by the most powerful members of their society. As women are abused and children are robbed of their inheritance by the powerful in their midst. They're not like God because they've forsaken his ways. And instead, they've chosen, as Micah says in chapter 6, verse 16, they have chosen to walk in the ways of Ahab and Omri, or Ahab, an evil king who had rebelled against the people. So Micah's message is a call for them and a call for you and a call for me back to Yahweh, back to his character, back to his ways, because being with the Lord will always make us like the Lord. The question, though, throughout the book of Micah is, what is the Lord like? If you've heard any verse in the book of Micah at all, you've probably heard Micah chapter 6, verse 8. We sang it last week in preparation for this week, where Micah says, as the people call out to the Lord, Micah says, God has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is a pretty powerful interpretive key to the book of Micah. And we're going to lay it over the verses that we've read, but also the book as a whole. Because in giving us what God desires of us, Micah gives us a picture of God's heart, of what it is that God desires, of what God is like. The Lord is first and foremost the God of justice. The book of Micah rotates between a pattern. There's three different cycles of it throughout the book where Micah declares what is an oracle of judgment. He confronts the people with their sin. In two separate places, it sounds very much like a law court, a courtroom scene, as he calls forth witnesses against the wickedness of the people. And because of their wickedness, God is going to come in judgment. We see at the beginning of chapter 1. We see it there in chapter 3. We see it also in chapter 6. As he begins declaring the wickedness of the people, and the justice of the Lord. But as we dive deeper into Micah, we understand, and as we dive deeper into Scripture, that biblical justice is often broader than we tend to understand it. There are actually two sides of justice according to the Bible. One we are more comfortable with, another that we oftentimes neglect. The first one is that according to biblical justice, biblical justice ensures that the wicked are punished. But the flip side of that coin is that the righteous are vindicated. Not only must we settle for making sure that the wicked are punished and get their due, but if we are going to truly do justice, as God calls us to do justice, we must also be the people who approach the righteous and see that they are vindicated, who come to the weak and those who are being oppressed and ensure that they have justice enacted for them. It is a both and. In bringing punishment upon the wicked, we are standing for the weak. When we stand for the weak, it will mean that we must see to the punishment of the wicked. Throughout his message, Micah portrays the Lord as doing justice, as both punishing the wicked and vindicating the righteous. The problem for the people of Israel and Jerusalem is that they stand in the place of the wicked. The clearest depiction in this book that God is a God of justice, who does justice, is the fact that God is not a God who practices nepotism. God is not a God who has favoritism in his people in the sense that God is not blind to their injustice to the point that he will not, in fact, discipline even his own children. And so what we see throughout the book of Micah is that the Lord has determined to judge his people for their sin. He is judging them for their prostitution, for their unrighteousness, for their bribery, usury, slavery, and oppression. He is coming against them. But it's beyond just this that the Lord is going to discipline His children. As we said earlier, the sin is deeper just than these surface-level sins. There's a heart issue at stake here as well as the people presume upon the kindness of the Lord, stating that because we're in Jerusalem, because we're God's chosen people, because we're God's children, this shouldn't happen to us. But because God is a God of justice, who will not overlook the sins even of His people, His character demands that they be punished. 
And so, despite the fact that they cry out, the Lord's in the midst of us, no one can touch us. The Lord says in Micah chapter 3, verse 12, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain, a house, a wooded height. Not even Jerusalem is safe from God's discipline, from his wrath, from his punishment of sin. Beyond that, their special status is not enough to appease the Lord and to prevent the fact that he is coming in his justice. They have actually begun to treat Yahweh, the Lord, in the way that the pagans would treat their gods. Who would constantly come before them with offerings and sacrifices and grandiose displays of, of religious rituals. Think about the prophets of Baal in the book of in the Kings. When they come before Baal and they're cutting themselves and sacrificing and doing all of this stuff in an attempt to appease their God. And the Israelites think that that's all that they have to do. God says that is not enough. And their response is really pretty audacious when you get to Micah chapter 6. When they say, well, then what should we do, God? What is it that you expect of us? Verses 6 through 7 leading up to verse 8 that we have read already says this, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What do you want, God? You want burnt offerings? You want calves just a year old? Do you want thousands of rams and rivers overflowing with oil? What about my firstborn son, God? Is that going to be enough to make you happy? They're treating God like a pagan God. None of their religious ritualism, however, impresses the Lord. God goes on in chapter 6, verses 10 through 11 to say, Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit, acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? So the Lord is going to come to his people, even to Jerusalem, and visit them in discipline and in judgment. Jerusalem, he says, will fall. This is the first that we hear in the minor, prophet, in the minor prophets of Babylon coming in its strength. And Micah prophesies that Jerusalem will be destroyed by Babylon and they will be taken into captivity in Babylon where they will wait for the redemption of the Lord. All their grandiose displays of religious ritualism and self-righteousness is not enough to turn away the wrath of the Lord. But biblical justice, as I said, is about more than just simply punishing the wicked. It's also about caring for the weak and the wounded and seeing that the righteous are vindicated. And the Lord actually promises to do this throughout the book. In chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, after confronting the people with their sin, God then says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass through the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is their head. God says, I see you, the remnant of the faithful ones, the ones who are being defrauded and the ones who are being ignored. As even Micah proclaims that as he proclaims this message of God's coming judgment, the false prophets all around him are telling him to be quiet. That's not the message that we want to hear. That's not the message that the people want to hear. And so the righteous are being ignored. The righteous are being stamped out. The righteous are being shut up. And God says, I see you. 
And despite the coming judgment, I will draw you in. He goes on in chapter 4. He says, in that, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. God sees the ones that the world ignores. God sees those that are the remnant of the faithful who love him and who desire his ways. And God will not overlook them. Because God is a God who does justice. Not only does he ensure the punishment of the wicked, he ensures the vindication of the righteous. Those who are dependent upon the Lord. Those like Micah who remain faithful even amidst a faithless generation. And if you and I are going to be with the Lord and like the Lord, then we must be people who do justice in the same way. We must become a community of believers who long for not only the punishment of the wicked, but who see and serve the weak and the wounded and the overlooked and the oppressed in our midst, finding ways to serve them. That might mean we have to roll up our sleeves and step into some people's lives that are messy. That might mean bringing people into our midst that look different. Who bear scars and wounds by, from their sin and the sins of others. It might mean that we finally have to become a hospital for sinners instead of a museum for saints. It might mean that our gatherings get a little bit messy as we deal with real problems. Because that is what it is to do justice. Hearts hardened to those around us who are suffering are hearts that don't reflect the Lord and lives that aren't lived with Him. But the Lord isn't just a God of justice. He's a God of covenant love. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, God says, this is what I expect of you. This is what is good. Do justice and love kindness. Now, perhaps your translation has a different word there. Maybe it's mercy. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's any a number of different things because the underlying Hebrew word here is a word that we have no real equivalent in to our English language. Mercy, compassion, loyalty, steadfast love is what this is oftentimes translated throughout the Scriptures. It is a complex word that talks about an unwavering faithfulness to unfaithful people. Because you see, Micah's message isn't just a message of judgment. His oracles go from judgment, an identification of their sin, and a declaration of God's impending judgment, to a message of hope. Because God is the God that we oftentimes see, maybe some of us see this more easily, God is the God of justice, who will not overlook the evils. Maybe that's the world that you were raised in and you don't have so much of a difficulty understanding that God is a God who sees our sin and who will deal with our sin. But maybe like me, that's the, the, one, the way that you grew up and what you need is the hard check that brings us back to the true nature and character of God. His first importance is God declares himself to be a God of mercy, a God of steadfast love, a God of compassion long before he is a God who deals with the wicked. And so Micah proclaims regularly this message of hope. And that message of hope applies specifically to Jerusalem. 
He says that God is going to bring the people of the world up against Jerusalem in chapter 4. The nations are assembled against you. They're saying and they're ready, let us defile her, let us tear her down. What they don't understand is that God has brought them there to be judged and destroyed. Here in this book, Micah prophesies what eventually happened, that Assyria came, they came up to the gates of Jerusalem, and the king Hezekiah repented, cried out to God for help, and the angel of the Lord came and struck down the Assyrian armies and sent them home. They had enslaved everybody else, but then they got to the doors and the gates of Jerusalem, God stepped in because of the repentance of King Hezekiah. Nevertheless, Again, as Micah has prophesied, Jerusalem did fall to the Babylonians because the repentance did not last very long. God says, despite the fact that I will discipline my people and I will destroy my city, God's vision of time is a whole lot grander than ours. You see, the people of Jerusalem at this particular time believed that we're untouchable. That God is going to love his Jerusalem, his city. God is going to be faithful to his promises that he would establish an eternal reign for David and his sons. Here we believe that, we know that, therefore we are untouchable. But God's promise is for eternity. Not necessarily in that moment untouchable. And so God brings his discipline upon Jerusalem. But look what we read in chapter 4. As soon as, and if we read too quickly through the book of Micah, we just miss over this pause at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, where Micah says, God says this, Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Pause. Think about the weight of what that meant for the people of Israel. And then get to chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. They shall come there. Why shall they come there? They'll come so that they might know and learn the ways of the Lord, that they might walk in his paths, because from Jerusalem flows perfect justice. So much so that the declaration of the king goes to the four corners of the earth and from that position, those armies destroy their weapons and live in peace and love and harmony as they trust in one another. God is the God of covenantal love. He will not abandon or forsake his people, but he will discipline us in the moment. He will fulfill all of his eternal promises. But that doesn't mean that you and I are untouchable by his discipline now. Repeatedly throughout this, but we see here this beautiful picture of what Jerusalem is yet to become but will be one day. The high and holy city, the place where God reigns from Mount Zion, chapter 4, verse 7, with his people from this time forth and evermore. God is a God of steadfast love. God is a God who comes to his people and is faithful to them despite their faithlessness. And as we are commanded and expected by God's expectation to do justice, it's on the level of our hands, we are to love kindness. 
We can't do justice in our behavior if our hearts aren't right with God. And if our hearts aren't in love with this aspect of God's character, in recognition that this is how God treats us, this is how God communes with us, this is how God draws near to us, that he is a faithful God even when and especially if we are faithless. And when we forget this, when we go about our lives and just become focused on living our life the way I want to live, regardless of the consequences, instead of living in this daily dependence upon the character of God to love us, to forgive us, especially when we don't deserve it, we will never do justice if we don't also love kindness, mercy, steadfast love. And so we must receive the love that God has given to us. The God who is the God of justice, the God who is a God of covenant love, who always keeps his promises, no matter what our present circumstances might seem like. God is faithful to discipline us and to restore us after that discipline. This is what God is like. Micah ends his book with an interesting question. He says, who then is like our God? Chapter 7, verse 18, who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love? Micah's name literally translates as, who is like God? And so he ends his messages with the same question that his name provokes, who is like God? God says, this is what he requires of us, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Who is like this God? So I don't know about you, but I know in my life I don't regularly do justice. I don't regularly love kindness and steadfast love. I don't regularly walk with the Lord. Instead, I walk in the ways of the world sometimes. Which is why I need someone who will walk there for me and with me. Throughout the book of Micah, he invites us to walk with the Lord multiple times, but specifically there in chapter 6, verse 8, he says we are to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk with the Lord. Think about that for a moment. We're not to walk under the Lord. We're not even to walk in front of the Lord. We're not to walk behind the Lord. We're invited to walk with the Lord. To walk in His ways and His statutes. See, God promises the restoration of His kingdom. But in the book of Micah, not only does He prophesy the restoration of His kingdom, He prophesies the King who will make all that possible. Why is the new Jerusalem a kingdom of hope? Because there is a king on the throne who is judging according to God's character. 
who is judging with a love for kindness, who is walking perfectly with the Lord. Why does God care about the weak and the lowly? Because God sees each and every one of us and He proves the fact that He cares about the weak and the lowly and the oppressed and the overlooked and the unwanted because in the middle of, chapter, of the book in chapter 5, He says that this King isn't going to come from high and lofty Jerusalem. It's going to come from a nowhere podunk town that nobody thinks anything about. Bethlehem. If you've heard any other verse from the book of Micah beyond 6-8, you've read and heard Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah. What in the world does that mean? It means that when Joshua, if you go back to the book of Numbers, and when Joshua came in and conquered the land, and he started rattling off all of the cities that the people began to inhabit as he goes through all of the different tribes and their allotments, Bethlehem was so small and insignificant it never made the list. And yet, from here came David. And from here came an even greater David. From you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, of ancient of days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. God invites us to walk with the Lord, because God is the Lord who walks with his people. From Genesis chapter 3, when God would come down and walk in the garden with his people in the cool of the day, till the time when God himself would clothe himself in humanity and walk among his people and endure every temptation that you and I endure and yet remained without sin. And yet who nevertheless took upon himself what you and I deserve. The one who would execute judgment. The one who would take our iniquity upon himself. You see, as Micah ends his book, he ends with a lamentation. And in the midst of that lamentation, he turns his eyes to the Lord. He says, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Therefore, rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Furthermore, he concludes in chapter five, 7, verse 19, God will have compassion on us because he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our, seas, our, our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah looks to the Lord who is not only the God of justice, but the God of covenant love, who will not abandon or forsake his people, but will deal with their greatest enemy, which is not Assyria, which is not Babylon. It's the sin inside of them. And so Micah cries out and confesses his sin. The one who has earlier said, I am full of power and the Spirit to proclaim everybody else's problems. And yet he says right here, 
I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. The prophet of the Lord, on behalf of the people of the Lord, humbles himself with the Lord. Doesn't walk haughtily as though he is untouched and untainted by sin. As though he is better than the people that he has come to speak to. But he leads in confession and repentance and in faith that though God will discipline, in the end the hope is sure that he will establish his kingdom and his reign forever and forever where sin will be wiped from the face of the earth, where suffering will be swallowed up in victory, and where death will no more reign. Because God is a God of justice and steadfast love. Who is like the Lord our God? Only Jesus. And Jesus' invitation is that we daily take up our cross and follow Him. He invites us, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. He invites us into His fellowship and into His presence. You see, we can't do justice unless we love mercy. We can't love mercy unless we're walking with the God of mercy. And the invitation from Scripture and from Micah is to come back to this God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who forgives iniquity and pours grace upon His people, passing over transgression that we might receive the inheritance that belongs to Christ. So my question is, the heart of it all is, are we walking with Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus? Not just on Sunday mornings when you come in and do your religious ritual. Not just in those quiet moments. But is it affecting your heart so that you love like Christ loves you? And is it changing your behavior such that you do justice. If we are with God, we will be like God. And if we are not like God, it's evidence we're not really with Him. And His invitation is to just come back. Repent, return, and receive God's covenantal grace and mercy. Would you do that today? And every day. Because repentance isn't merely the way into the Christian life. It's the way of the Christian life. So I invite you, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Would you go before the Lord in repentance this morning? 